can't get these numbers to add up. It's like we're never gonna get out of this hole. Credit card debt, does it ever end? <laughs> Maybe I can help. We sure could use it. We've tried debt consolidation companies. We've even taken out loans to help make payments. Well, you're not the only ones. Did you know millions of Americans live with debt they cannot control? That's why I developed this unique new program for managing your debt. It's called Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. Oh, let me see that. If you don't have any money, you should not buy anything. Hmm, sounds interesting. Sounds confusing. I don't know, honey. This makes a lot of sense. There's a whole section here on how to buy expensive things using money you save. Give me that. And where would you get this saved money? I tell you where and how in chapter three. Okay, but what if I want something but I don't have any money? You don't buy it. Well, let's say I don't have enough money to buy something. Should I buy it anyway? No. Now I'm really confused. It's a little confusing at first. Well, what if you have the money? Can you buy something? Yes. Now take the money away. Same story? Nope. You shouldn't buy stuff when you don't have the money. <laughs> I think I got it. I buy something I want and then hope that I can pay for it, right? <laughs> no. You make sure you have money, then you buy it. Oh, then you buy it. But shouldn't you buy it before you have the money? <laughs> no. Why not? It's in the book. It's only one page long. The advice is priceless, and the book is free. Wow, I like the sound of that. Yeah, we can put it on our credit card. So get out of debt now. Write for your free copy of Don't Buy Stuff You Cannot Afford. And if you order now, you'll also receive Seriously. If you don't have the money, don't buy it. Along with a 12-month subscription to Stop Buying Stuff magazine. So order today. Well, we are in our fourth week of a series that we're calling Unmasked. And in case... You haven't figured it out yet? We're going to talk a little bit about money today. Anybody want to talk about money? <laughs> You're like, I got to go get some coffee. All right. We're going to talk about money. And to kind of get you going, um, trying, to, trying to help you understand the angle we're coming at today. So I was thinking back to uh, when I was in, in grade school, long, 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 long time ago, before they invented the wheel. And um, I was thinking about um, how over the years, uh, my wardrobe has changed, and I'm hoping this will help you a little bit. Um, so when I, was in, when I was in grade school, my uh, mom and dad were just kind of scraping by. And so when it came to buying clothes, and maybe some of you can identify with this. So for instance, um, my shoes were, we would always go to Kenny's Shoes. I don't know if any of you went to Kenny's Shoes. Yeah, okay. Kimberly, all right, Kim. So Kenny's Shoes, and, um, and then uh, I... Shirts and stuff was always Hang 10. Now, Hang 10 was super cool when I was a kid and it had like the Hang 10 logo. And I did live in Southern California. Now, I noticed like Hang 10, they have it again, but it doesn't have the logo, so I don't know what the point is. And then um, jeans, jeans, pants were the tough one. So I don't know if you can relate to this. So I used to, because we were barely getting by, my parents used to, my jeans were called tough skins. 
Anyone? Anyone wear tough skins? Anyone abused as a child with tough skins? Because I still have scratches on my legs from wearing tough skins. So they're like Sears equivalent of Levi's, but not really. And then when I was in high school, my parents, they were making more money. And so they're like, you know, we can increase your budget for clothes a little bit. So in high school, I kind of graduated from Kenny's Shoes to Nike's, which is really cool. I was feeling way better about myself. Uh, instead of wearing tough skins, I got to wear actual Levi's, um, uh, you know, my sister wore Jordash, but that's another story altogether. And then we had, I don't know if you have it here, but the place I love to go shopping for clothes uh, was a place called Miller's Outpost. Anybody have Miller's Outpost? Yeah, yeah. So it was a really cool place because you could go and buy a pair of pants and a shirt and a roll of duct tape. It was just really great, all in one place. And then my junior, senior year in high school, my, both my parents got promotions and we were in the money. And so now it's kind of like, hey, you can buy clothes pretty much wherever you want. And so um, I started buying my clothes at The Gap that, you know, and um, I bought shirts with, you know, alligators on them. Remember that? Izod and uh, Polo and traded in my, um, my Nikes, which were not that cool anymore now. Traded them in for, now I wear them again, but um, traded in, in for the white leather Reeboks, if you remember when those, those are so cool. And then, and so, so when I was in, in grade school, when I was in uh, high school, I could, I could wear Reeboks, I could shop at the Gap, I could wear Izod and Polo, and I could do it with integrity because my mom and dad had the money to pay for it. They could afford it. It was within their budget. And then I went to college. Okay. So when I went to college, my, I've told this story before, my parents were like, yoo-hoo, nice knowing you, see you later, and uh, you're on your own. So I was on my own for college. So I moved to another state, started going to college. I, I had to pay for college myself. So I had to pay for tuition, had to pay for food, had to pay for a place to live, and I had to pay for my own clothes. Now, here was the interesting thing as I look back, okay, you would think that, so now I'm a, I'm, I've got a part-time income working as an intern in a church, and I'm paying for my college education. What kind of clothes do you think I was wearing? I was, I was buying the exact same clothes I did when I moved out of my house, all right? I should, looking back, I'm like, I should have been shopping at Goodwill for everything that I wore because that would have matched my income. Actually, it would have been a little generous to shop at Goodwill, but that's, but, but that's what I was doing. Now, why was I, why was I wearing, why was I buying clothes that, quite frankly, I could not afford, right? Well, I, I was a guy in college, that's why. And, you know, when you're a guy in college, I mean, quite frankly, I didn't want to wear the clothes I could afford, so I put on a mask because I was trying to, I was trying to impress people, right? I was a single guy in college. Who do you think I was trying to impress? So I'm trying to impress people. I'm trying to, prof- you know, professors and, and, you know, the people where I worked and went to church with and all that. So I'm, I'm wearing, I'm financially faking it. I'm wearing a mask now. I'm, I'm buying things that I cannot afford. And what I want to talk today is about that mask that many of us are tempted and sometimes wear to financially fake who we are, to live a lifestyle that, quite frankly, we cannot afford, to wear clothes that we cannot afford, to drive vehicles, to live in homes, to take vacations that just don't match, or we can afford to buy toys and stuff and iPads. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound bitter about iPads because I don't have one, but, you know, just, just say it. So here's our uh, verse for the weekend. Proverbs 13, 7, and I'd like for us to read this together. 
One man pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. Now, that word pretends in the Hebrew is the idea of adopting something. Adopting, in this particular situation, it's a person who adopts a lifestyle. So one man adopts the lifestyle of the rich. Does that sound familiar? Yet he has nothing. There's nothing to back it up. It's a person who wears a mask who buys things he cannot afford, who wears things he cannot afford, who drives vehicles he cannot afford, but he puts on this mask. What's he saying? He's saying, obviously, I'm important because of that, you know, that that tag on my clothing, because of the make of my car, because of the neighborhood that I live in or the size of my high-definition television. But behind the mask, there's not the income to back it up. There's insecurity insecurity in a person that makes them think I have to find another way to impress people. Behind the mask, there's debt, you know, and along with debt, there's stress. How am I going to pay for this? There's fear. What if people find out that, you know, I'm not my clothing or the vehicle that I drive in and we put on masks? Now, when I say that, um, we live in a culture today that has so bought into this kind of idea of wearing masks that many times we hear it and we don't, we don't really get it. In fact, our culture has been called the, the play now, pay later culture, right? Not shocking to hear that. That sounds about right. The play now, pay later. But it hasn't always been this way. In fact, if you go back to the 1920s and the 1930s, so to, you know, maybe our grandparents or great-grandparents, we find a generation that they would have been described this way. The pay now play later generation. The save now, the work now, the store up now, and, and play later when we have, you know, don't buy things you cannot afford, so wait till you can afford it, and then you have it. But then a generation came after the, the Great Depression generation, and for kids that grew up in the shadow of the Great Depression, there came a generation that looked and said, you know, we're tired of uh, delayed gratification, right? We want, we want to play, and we want to play now. And so you had people that were, that were taking out bigger loans on their homes. Uh, people were taking out bigger loans on their cars, um, and credit cards. Credit cards were kind of the, 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 the big thing as a society that we were getting into. Now, if you look back in like the, the 1890s, um, what you'll find is there were businesses in the U.S. that began to issue credit cards. And these, these credit cards that came out in the 1890s and in the early 1900s, they were just little pieces of cardboard with a name and a number on it. And they would be issued sometimes maybe by a gas station or issued by a, 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 a corner market. And the reason they gave out these credit cards was because it made it easier. They weren't doing it to make money. Uh, off interest. They were doing it to gain customer loyalty. So they might give a credit card to, to, to people who lived in the area, and hopefully you would come and buy your, your merchandise from that place. And then at the end of the month, you would come in and you would pay your bill, and you'd pay the entire bill. You'd pay it in full. And in 1950, uh, the Diners Club card came out. Some of you may remember that. The, the Diners Club card was different because it wasn't issued by an individual store or a gas station. It was issued by a company, and you could take that, that Diners Club card, and you could use it at, at different gas stations and restaurants. Originally, the whole idea was it was for traveling businessmen 
so that they, they, when they were traveling, they could just have a card and stay at a hotel with it and buy their gas with it, come home at the end of the month, again, with a diner's cl- cl- uh, club card. You'd pay your bill in full. Uh, eight years later, the American Express card came out. It was a lot like the diner's card, but you could use it in even more places. And then a year later in 1959, I think when you look back, you see it was really a watershed event for America, and that is that the MasterCard came out. And the thing about the MasterCard that was different than the Diners Club card or the American Express card was they had this thing called a a revolving balance. And so at the end of the month, you didn't have to pay your entire bill. See, up to that point, you could use a credit card, but basically you had to pay that entire bill at the end of the month. Now, with a MasterCard, you actually had the ability now to spend more money than you made. And that's what we did. As a nation, we began to get in the habit of spending more money than we made. Now, my generation, if you look statistically, we kind of took that whole idea of credit and debt to a whole new level. In fact, here's a, here's a couple of um, recent statistics. The average consumer in America has 13 credit obligations. It might be a car, it might be a home, uh, it might be credit cards. And on average, for uh, households in America that have credit cards, they have nine. Nine different credit cards. And for households that have a balance, a revolving balance, if they have one on their credit cards, per household, they average $14,750 in revolving credit. Today, 84% of college students have credit cards with a revolving balance on it. They're students. So one of the great things they're learning in college right now (laughs) is how to have debt. And then there's the emerging generation between the ages of 20 and 30. And what we're told is that 70% of Americans between the ages of 20 and 30 have a zero cash reserve. That is at least as much as going out every month as is is coming in. Um, And yet, here's the disturbing thing. That, That shouldn't be so shocking, but here's what's disturbing. What's disturbing is the overwhelming amount of those of those people are, are trying to keep up the same standard of living that they had when they moved out of their home. Their parents who took years and years and years to get to a certain standard of living, now these kids are, are getting out of the home and trying to maintain the same standard of living. They're buying the same clothes. They're buying the same cars. They're buying the same tech products. They're buying the same phones. But they don't have the money to back it up. And they're going in tremendous debt. A couple of things that I found interesting. The average wedding budget today in America is $20,000. Is that, is that like crazy? I mean, I think we baked a cake in the kitchen and, you know, cut some flowers out of our neighbor's yard. $20,000, all right? And here's an interesting thing. Today, um, more than half of couples who get married are paying the bill themselves. And most of those people are in this group of 20 to 30. So you have to think about it for a minute. Let's see. 70% of them don't have any money. And most of them are are averaging $20,000. Honeymoon, another $4,000. So how are they paying for that? They're financing it. And as one writer said, he wrote this. The tragedy for a lot of these couples today is that their divorce was final before their honeymoon was paid off. And we know that the number one factor in divorce today in America 
is financial problems. So the question becomes, why do we do that? Why do we buy things we can't afford? Why do we, why do we put on weddings that we can't afford and go on honeymoons that we can't afford? Why? Why do we do it? What's behind that? Well, it's a good question. I, you know, some of you, even right now as we talk about this, I know some of you are probably thinking, well, I'm a little different because my financial problems are not my fault. You know, my parents didn't teach me this stuff. My parents just taught me how to spend more than my income. Or it's not my fault, it's the economy. And that's the reason that I'm in debt. Or, you know, it's my job, but my boss is a jerk and he doesn't pay me what I'm worth. Or I didn't know my car was going to break down. Or the kids were going to need braces. Or, I mean, you just have to have granite countertops. I mean, there's just there's really no other option. It's, it's the most practical way to go, you know. Whatever it is. But, but here's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about the fact that financial faking... I'm not saying that there are not genuine difficult challenges in today's uh, economy. There absolutely are. But when it comes to financially faking it, okay, financially faking it is not a financial problem. That's not what I'm talking about today. Financially faking it, putting it on a mask, is a spiritual problem, pure and simple. And Jesus understood that. In fact, Jesus knew that the number one competitor for our hearts is money. In Matthew 6, 24, he said this, you cannot serve both God and, and what? And money. He didn't say you can't serve God in your job. You can't serve God in yourself. You can't serve God in pleasure. While those things may be true, Jesus knew that our biggest challenge, the biggest competitor for our heart, and it's the reason that he talked about it, and the Bible talks about it again and again, it's money. And it's not really money. You understand, money is not evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil. Because we think that money can promise us things that only God can provide. So what do we think that money can provide for us? Three things. Oftentimes we look to money to provide happiness and significance and security. And we start to believe the lie that money can deliver for us what only God can provide. Happiness, significance, and security. Now, in the typical sermon, at this point, I would give you a three-point outline on some practices or things you can do, that kind of stuff. I might go like all Dave Ramsey on you, which, by the way, Dave Ramsey is a great guy, and Financial Peace is a, is a great program to be a part of. What would Dave say? He'd say things like, get out of debt, run like a gazelle, you know, get an emergency fund, get the, the debt snowball thing going, start investing and saving and giving like crazy. And those are all wise and biblical behaviors. But today, I don't want to talk about behavior, I want to talk about belief. Okay, because, because belief is what really drives behavior. So today I want to talk about believe. What, do, what, what should we believe? What does the Bible say about money? Three things. First of all, our culture often we seek happiness in money because we don't know what we have in Christ. We don't know what is ours in Christ. So we seek happiness in money. Now, money can buy all sorts of things. Money can buy food, I like food. You probably like food. Money can buy housing. It can, you know, get us an education. Money can buy clothing. These are good things, but they're not happiness. Okay, food is not happiness. Shelter is not happiness. Think about it this way. If happiness came from money, let's just be logical. If happiness came from money, then the richest people you know would be the happiest, and the poorest people you know would be the most miserable, if that were true. But you know, as well as I do, that that's simply not true. I know some people who are very, very rich, and they're very, very happy, and they'll tell you it's great to have money, but that's not where their happiness comes from. I know I grew up in a culture with people who had lots and lots and lots of money, and they were miserable, 
grouchy people that you did not want to be about, around. Complained about everything. Rich, but not happy. The, the poorest people I have ever met are people that live in Nicaragua. Dirt, literally, dirt poor. They live on dirt, in dirt shack. The poorest people I've ever met, and they are some of the happiest people that I've ever met. It doesn't make any sense logically if money brings happiness, but so often we think, if I just had a little more money, I think I'd be happier. If we just had a little more square footage, I think we'd all be happier. If we just had another bathroom, that's, our, that's a lie we believe in our house. One more bathroom and I think we'd all be happier. My daughter would definitely be happier. If, I just, if, my, if my vehicle had, you know, the, the seat warmer thing, or if we could just take that, vac- right now, that's a lie I'm tempted to believe. If I could just take a vacation where there was sun, <laughs> I'd probably be a happier person. If I had the right label on my clothes, and so often we can believe that. But what's the Bible say about happiness? In Romans 4, 7, this is what it says. It says, blessed. Now, now that word blessed is uh, the Greek word makarios, and it means happy or happier. It literally has the idea of a deep-rooted contentedness. Contented, happy people are those, notice what it says, whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Here's what he says. True, deep-seated happiness comes very simply from being right with God. You can add all the money onto a life that is not right with God and you're not going to get happiness. Happiness comes from being right with God. Paul's point is simply this. If you're right with God, think about that for a minute. If you're right with God, if because of what Jesus has done for you on the cross, you know that you are accepted by God. That becomes the foundation upon which happiness rests in a person's life. In Ephesians, Paul says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, that idea again, who's given us a deep-rooted satisfaction in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. It's interesting here because what he says is that, that our happiness is not rooted in the physical things that we have on earth like a home or a vehicle or clothing or a bank account, which by the way, haven't we seen over the last few weeks that if your happiness is, is in things that you have, those things can be taken away from you just like that, can't they? And then where's your happiness? What he says is your happiness is God has it stored up in a place where it cannot be taken away from you. It's, it's in your relationship with Jesus. It's in your salvation. It's in the power and the protection and the love of God in your life. It's in Christ. Christ is the source of every blessing of happiness. And so every day, you and I, when we wake up, regardless of our circumstances and what clothes we have to put on and what car we have to drive to work, you understand, we can still, with integrity, raise our hands to God and say, I'm a blessed person. And I don't need to wear masks and I don't need to try to, to fake it with anyone else or with myself because I'm right with God. And if I'm right with God, then I'm blessed. Here's the second thing in our, in our world today and that is often we seek significance. That's the second thing. The first one is happiness. The second one is significance in money. Why do we do that? Because we just oftentimes, we just don't know who we are in Christ. Now, let me ask you this question. And I asked in the other two services and no, nobody's really answered me, okay? It's not a trick question, all right? Is your significance determined by how much money you have in the bank? 
All right, thank you. Yes. <laughs> Everybody's like, oh, I don't know. I'm not sure, okay? No, no, it's not. Now, okay, see, here's the thing. Intellectually, you know that. You know that. You know that the, that the amount of wealth that you have on this earth is not, that doesn't determine your significance as a person. We know that intellectually, but emotionally. Okay, so maybe this is just me. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself. But imagine for a minute that you're cruising down E Street, <laughs> even though you should probably try to avoid it at all costs right now. But imagine that you're, you're cruising down E Street and you're driving what I like to refer to as the Uncle Buck mobile. Anyone ever see Uncle Buck, right? So the old station wagon, you're driving down the road and you get to the stoplight and when you get there, the car backfires and smoke comes out and it's rusting, the paint's literally falling off and somebody pulls up next to you in whatever your dream vehicle is and they kind of look down at you. Do you feel any different about yourself then let's say you switch, you switch roles. You're in it. Would you feel a little bit better about yourself and you're looking down on that person? See, intellectually, we know that what we drive doesn't make us a better person. But, you know, just sometimes, like I was, I was thinking back um, when I graduated from college in, in Phoenix, um, in the fall, I was going to move up here to the Northwest to go to uh, seminary. But in the summer, I lived with my mom and dad who lived just outside of the Bay Area in San Francisco. I was working at a church in Oakland that summer, so I, I stayed with my parents uh, in the summer. And I was driving an 11-year-old rust bucket Buick Regal. It was, I, the great thing is it had a trunk like the size of my house, which was really great. And my mom liked it. So sometimes in the morning I'd be having breakfast before I go to work. And my mom would say, would it be possible for us to trade cars today? Because she would go, she wanted to go golfing and take a couple of her friends and she needed room in the trunk. And then her car was just a two seater not like mine that could hold like 13 people. And so she'd say, would it be okay if we could trade cars? And her car was a uh, Mercedes convertible sports car. And I'd be like, I don't know. Give me keys. I'd take the keys out. Now, when, when my mom would leave, now when I got in the car to go to work, do you think I put the top down? Oh yeah, because I'm that shallow. Um, do you think that I took the long way to work? Oh, the long, long way to work. And the cranked up the radio. And why did I do that? Because I was just, I was just that shallow. The car I drove in kind of made me feel a little bit better about myself. Now, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe for you, it's not a car. Maybe, so, maybe you don't even care about what car you drive. Maybe for you, it's the house you live in. Maybe when you live in a nice house, it makes you feel when the furniture's new. When the, when the countertops are new, you feel a little bit better about yourself when people come over and see it than before. I don't know what it is for you. Your house, your clothes, whatever it is. What does the Bible tell us about this, this, this struggle? And we all face it, I think. In Romans, it tells us this. And this is a great passage. For his Holy Spirit, speaking of God, his Holy Spirit speaks to us deep in our hearts. And what does it speak to us? What does it tell us? It tells us that we are God's, what? We are God's children. It just gets better here. And since we are God's children, we will share in his treasures. For everything, imagine this, for everything that God gives to his son, Christ, is ours too. That's crazy, isn't it? Everything that God's, we're God's children. Everything God gives to Christ, he's going to give to us too. 
Now, are you feeling a little bit better about yourself? Because if you're not, you're not getting this. It gets even better. But if we were to share his glory, woohoo, we get to share in his suffering. Isn't that great? And yet what we suffer is nothing compared to the glory that he will give us later. Now, it's so easy for us sometimes to focus on who we are not instead of who God says that we are. It's so easy for us to kind of get our worth by looking at the people around us instead of what God says. On Monday of this last week, I, got, I went down to the Rose Garden Arena and I listened to all these speakers um, and every one of them talked about how they have made millions and millions of dollars and they're all millionaires. And so I'm kind of sitting there listening and Colin Powell spoke and Laura Bush spoke and Bill Cosby spoke and I'm just listening to these people and they're talking, neat people, but they're talking about all the mil. In one way or another, even though it wasn't about money, they all somehow managed to mention that they're millionaires. And I remember kind of sitting there going, oh man, I'm not a millionaire. Does that shock you? I'm not a millionaire, you know. Oh man, I don't really feel that. You know, and so, and maybe it's money. Maybe, maybe for you, it's uh, maybe you're, you, you go home and you drive through your neighborhood and you see some of the things that your neighbors have parked in the driveway or, or you know, whatever it is. And it makes you feel like you look at them and you think, I'm, man, I'm not like, I'm not that good. Or maybe it's at work when you walk by the office of someone else and you compare yourself to them and you find yourself lacking. Or maybe it's a, maybe it's a friend of yours who's a parent and you think, I'm not as good of a parent or I'm not as good as, of a husband or whatever it is. And so often the temptation is we compare ourselves to other people. We find ourselves lacking. And so we try to compensate it for it with the right clothes or the car or the house or you know, the, the hair plugs or whatever it is. And yet God says, you don't need to do that. What does he say? Notice here. He says, you have the Holy Spirit that lives in you. Think about that for a moment. The Holy Spirit of God lives in you. You think God just dumps the Holy Spirit in just anybody? No, I don't think he does. The Holy Spirit of God dwells inside of you. What does that tell you about who you are? And what does that tell you about your value to God, that he would put his spirit inside of you? It says that we're called God's children. Despite all the dumb things we've done and said and mistakes and failures, God says we can kind of walk around and we can kind of hold our head up and we, it's okay if we brag a little bit about our dad. When I was growing up, um, my, my mom and dad got married right out of high school. My dad didn't go to college at first, and then he went to community college. He started in the mail room at Bank of America, and he worked his way up. By the time I was in high school, he was the senior vice president. And I remember when they opened their new headquarters in downtown LA. It was a 52-story building, super cool. And I can remember going down there right after it opened. My dad took me down with him for the day. And um, I, now, now, I didn't know. I knew my dad was the senior vice president of Bank of America. What I didn't understand was I thought he was the senior vice president of Bank of America. I didn't know he was a senior vice president of Bank of America, if that makes sense. I, there, there are many of them, but I didn't know that. I just, I can remember that day we went down to the office, went into the tower. He said, I got to go into a meeting. I'm going to be out in an hour, so meet me here in an hour and just go ahead and look at the building. So I, first thing I did was I went to the elevator and I pressed the 52nd floor, and, uh, which was the president's suite, and I thought, well, I mean, obviously, president, vice president, they're probably buddies. 
I'll just go say hi. So I press the 52nd floor, and it goes up. I get to the top, and when you get to the top, you kind of come out in this lobby, and it's roped off, and there's a secretary there, and you can see the windows. Now, you're 52 floors up. Super cool, right? So I'm kind of looking out, and, and I'm walking up to the desk, and, and there's a guy there, and he says, can I help you? And I said, I'm just kind of here to check out this, the 52nd floor. I want to see the, the view. And he says, well, do you have an appointment? And I said, I just looking back now, I'm there. What was I thinking? But I'm like, I don't need an appointment. Uh, I'm Bob Barnes' son. He's like, who? Uh, the, the senior vice president? He's like, uh, we need security on floor 52. And some guy came and took me and went down. And I was really confused until lunch and my dad explained to me. But all the same, I was still pretty proud of my dad because of who he was and what he'd achieved. Do you realize who your father is? Do you realize who it is that calls you son, that calls you daughter? Isn't it strange, don't you think, that we are children of God and yet we're still driven, insecure somehow, to try to, to try to validate ourselves with the stuff we can buy and the clothes we wear and the cars we drive. And I think what he's saying here is, you don't need to do that. It's crazy. That none of that stuff could possibly make you more valuable than you already are. Since so we get to share in the treasures of Christ. Think about that. Now, when we think of treasures, you know, we kind of, we, again, we're a little shy. We think of money and stuff and all. That's not what he's talking about. What are the treasures of Christ? Well, like the righteousness of Christ is one. So we get to be right with God. We get to eventually have the character of Christ. You ever read the, the Gospels and you see Jesus do things and say things and think, I wish, I wish I was like that. I wish I could be like Jesus. Jesus says, one day you will be. You will be. You won't even have to try. You will be like Jesus. You will react and say and think like Jesus. And it's part of the riches that God gives you. You get the wisdom of God. You get the power of God. You get the glory of God. That's I, it says it in the passage. It's weird to me that we would share in the glory of God. I'm such an unglorious person. I've done so many stupid things. I get to share in the glory of God, eternal life. And what's interesting are these treasures he talks about, no amount of money could buy any of these things. No amount of money. And yet... We still, again, try to find significance and validate ourselves in the lesser things that money can buy. Oh, and by the way, it says we also get to share in his suffering. Like somehow that's a good thing, right? Like, you know, oh, why is he mentioning that? Let me tell you why he mentions that here. This is really significant. Part of what he's saying is, here's one of the ways that you know that you are an extremely valuable person because you get to share in the sufferings of Christ. So when Jesus came down here, he came down here for a reason. He didn't come down here and hang out by the pool until he was 33 and then go to the cross. It says he came down here to do some very, very specific things. He came down here to, to share the love of God, to share the truth of God, to reach out to the lost, to build up a body of believers. And what the Bible says is, you and I have been sent on the exact same mission. You have a mission your mission isn't to hang out by the pool until you go to heaven. Your mission is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Now, do you think that a person who totally flat out loves God is going to have an easy life? I don't think so. He says part of your, your mission on this earth is to, is to share with people who don't know Jesus, to share God's truth with them. Now, you know as well as I do, when you share the truth of God, some people will embrace it, and some people, to put it mildly, will not. 
all right? And he says, the other thing we get to do is we get to be a family and work on that. Have you ever found sometimes that being a family sometimes is a little hard, sometimes a little tough in the family of God? Have you noticed not everyone in here is always perfect and always loving and always understanding? It's a little work sometimes. But here's the good news. He goes, you're not just kind of hanging out by the pool until heaven. He says, you have a mission. That's why you're here. God trusts you with a mission. And the good news is this, that the price you pay in comparison to the reward you will receive is crazy. You'll look back and think, that was crazy. That was a big deal that I had to pay that price because of what I got in Christ. Your significance is not determined by your clothes or your bank balance or your car or your house. You know what? Your value is determined by who God says you are. And he says that you are his child period. And here's the third thing, and we need to be done, so I'm going to do this really quick. The third thing is security. Again, one of the things we often look to money to provide is security, and the reason is because we don't know how much we're loved. We just, we don't understand how much we're loved in Christ. And a lot of times, and you'll see this, people think, if, if I have enough money, I'll be secure. Now, can money buy food? Yes, yeah. Can money fix the car? Better than I can. Can money pay the mortgage? Absolutely. But when you ask people who have money, how much money would it take for you to feel totally secure? They'll always tell you a little bit more. I've never met anybody who says, I have so much money that I'm totally secure. Because as you know, there's some things that money can't buy. Can you have so much money that you're totally secure, that you're totally safe, that, that you'll be protected from harm, that you'll have perfect health, that the, that the loved ones in your life will have perfect health, that they won't go through struggles and heartaches in life, that all your relationships will be great, that you'll be loved? No amount of money can buy any of those things. In Romans, look what it says here. In Romans 8, 31, it tells us this. Paul's talking, he says, what then shall we say in response to, he's talking about all these things that we have in Christ. What shall we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. <laughs> he's just saying, come on, you know the answer is if God, if God is on my side, if God is standing next to me, if God's got his arms up and he's protecting me, is there anyone who can touch me? Absolutely, positively, not. There's no way. He who did not, so just let's just be logical. He who did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Here's the logic. If God sent down the most precious thing to him, his son Jesus Christ, and he sent him down here and he took our place on the cross and he died for us, does it make any sense to you that God would give the most important thing to him up for you and not give you everything else that you need to live for him in this life? Well, that's crazy. There's nothing that you need that God will withhold from you. Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. In other words, what he's saying is imagine someday that you're standing before God and are you going to go to heaven? What's going to happen here? You're standing before God. And imagine that somebody comes up and says, hey God, I just think you should know before you decide, that guy's a jerk. You know, or, or he cut me off in traffic or, you know, he wasn't a very good dad or, you know, whatever it is. Or the devil comes up and says, man, God, did you see some of the things he did and said and thought and bought and all that kind of stuff? What's he saying? He's like, you got to get that. You got to understand this. How, can anyone do this? Can anyone separate us from God? Well, no, it's God. God's the one who justified in the first place. God's the one who made you right through the cross. He's the one who did it. He goes on and says this. 
He says, who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, he who was, and this is important, raised to life, is at the right hand of God and he is interceding for us. He's overseeing our lives. See, when most of us think about security, we think about protection from hardship. We think about financial security, we call it social security, physical security, job security, whatever it is. But the security that God offers is so much deeper than that. It's, it's his love. And what he says is, nothing can come between you and the love of God. Nothing can, not the devil, not the economy, not your circumstances. Really, and this is a hard one for some people to get, not even you. Not even you. Nothing can come between you and God's love when your faith is in Jesus Christ. Nothing can come between you and God's love. What does that mean? It means that nothing then can come between you and the power of God, the forgiveness of God, the plans of God, the purpose of God, the eternal life that God offers. Nothing can come between you and God. He puts it this way as he goes on. Paul says this, I'm convinced that neither death nor life. So let's just cover the basis. What can separate us from God? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, and just, just in case we haven't covered it all, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is security. That's it. You don't need to buy anything. You don't need to wear anything because nothing can add to your value to God's love for you. True happiness, true significance, and true security are found in Christ alone. I want to read you one last passage. Paul says this, for whatever was to my profit, he's just talking about a worldly life. Whatever I could have profited in this life, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things. And I consider them all rubbish that I may gain Christ. And I, I read that for you because the, the average attitude in the church today is almost the exact opposite of what Paul says here. So many of us come to Christianity, come to the church today, and we ask the question, what can I get from Christ? What can I get from Jesus? Increasingly, this is what you're hearing preached in churches. This is what you're reading in books. This is why people are, are following Christ. Because it's what can I get from Jesus? What can he give me today? And Paul says very clearly, man, if that's the question you're asking, you're missing it. You're just absolutely missing the point. The question is not what can I get from Jesus. The point is what I get is Jesus. That's Paul's point. Paul's like, everything else I could get, the, you know, the granite countertops, the iPad, the car, the job, whatever it is, all that stuff, it's rubbish. It's nothing when I compare it to Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is my happiness. Jesus is my security. Jesus is my significance. I am not what I own. You are not what you wear. You are not what you drive. You are not the house that you live in. You are a child of God. You are in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.